This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Desgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj Show. So we're still in the early stages. Of course, I want to pick people in the Dr. Raj Show who are going to be of physicians and patients, and we hear all different sides of medicine. So today is going to be a very special day because I thought it would be interesting to have the opposite of the medical doctor, to have the surgeon, and not only any surgeon, let's talk about a very hot topic anywhere, which is going to be the importance of sleep. So I'm going to have one of my good friends, Dr. Eric Sarin, be on here. And before I let him say hello and everything, I've got to do the background, the bio of what he has accomplished. And, you know, he is very humble because I had so many things I was going to say about him, and but he gave me the short abbreviated bio. But let's put him on the spot. That um, Dr. Kasarian actually went to Harvard College. I didn't know that. So now I'm a little intimidated every time I talk to him now. And he graduated magna cum laude. So very impressive. You know, he went up on my liking list quite a bit. <laughs> and from there, he actually did medical school at Penn. And why did I bring that up is because I don't know if you know this, my wife went to Penn. So a very special uh, connection right there. And last but not least, he, you know, not last, but he also is uh, Alpha Omega Alpha. And that's something that I'm also part of that association. So that's one thing we share in common. Besides that, here's what I wanted to mention about Eric. He's the professor and vice chair of USC, the Caruso Department of Otolaryngology the head and neck surgery at Keck School of Medicine of USC. He is a leader in the surgical evaluation and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea and a past president of the International Surgical Sleep Society, the world's main organization in the field. And without further ado, here is Dr. Eric Kasterian. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Raj, it's great to be here. Nice, always nice to talk with you. And I uh, guess you got some things out of the dark ages there. <laughs> well, you know, how does time fly, Eric? We've been friends for almost seven years now. Is that how long you've been here? Seven years at USC? Absolutely, yes. Right on the dot. Did, now, did you know I was coming to USC so you followed me here so we could team up together? <laughs> you could run, but you cannot hide. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so anyways, the way I kind of wanted to do this conversation was start off general because a lot of my listeners here, some are med students, some don't know what path they're going to take uh, before they know, start a residency or where they'll lead them. So my first question for you is a good one. So we're going to call it ENT, so I don't miss, you know, miss up the words otolaryngology all the time. So why did we do, why did you do ENT in general? And, and, and even can you mention why surgery? Why, why not be like me? Why not be a medicine doctor? What was your decision making there? 
Well, you know, everyone uh, chooses fields and really chooses paths in life that that are that resonate with them. And and uh, I didn't even think I was going to go to medical school until really? junior year of college. I decided that <laughs> I was gonna, this is what I wanted to do. And uh, I was an economics major, and I'd actually went to economics grad school for a year. But I knew I was going to go to medical school, and um, by that time, and really, you know, the chance to directly work with people and taking care of problems that I felt were were meaningful to me, and uh, it's worked out to be great. And so in medical school, we actually, uh, at that time, we were required to have a one-week rotation actually in otolaryngology for okay. every student. And oh. the idea behind that, and I'll make my little plug for the people, <laughs> basically a huge proportion of uh, medical visits, especially even in emergency rooms, but also in, in pediatrics, of course. But so many things are related to the head and neck. And so the idea behind this requirement was to have everyone become pretty comfortable with examining someone, looking in someone's ears, uh, whether that was going to be your field or not. And so it's actually early in the week, I, I thought, eh, it's not really such an interesting field for me. But, but somebody you know, mentioned that it was actually a pretty nice field that had a, a nice variety of things and really had a good, I don't know, they like the, oftentimes you look at the people that are in a certain field and they say, you know, the otolaryngologists are some of the happiest surgeons in the hospital, they're some of the happiest doctors in the hospital. And so it's, it says something about the field, either it draws those people or it allows them to either be happy or remain happy, something along those lines. And so as I thought about it, I signed up for an elective a full month after that, and I thought it really, uh, it was a good field for me. And it was during that month, actually, mm-hmm. where, funnily enough, uh, University of Pennsylvania at that time had as part of the, what they call the pulmonary pathophysiology, second year okay. med- you actually learned about sleep. And we learned about it in neuroscience as well, uh, in our basic science curriculum. And we went to the sleep lab, and it was a long time ago, so sleep studies were still recorded on paper. <laughs> I looked at that and I had my own personality and I saw that one person's sleep study was basically a huge stack of the old fashioned printer paper where you have like perforated tabs on the sides. Yeah, yeah. They're circling all the breathing events. And I thought, there's no way that I have the patience to sit there and go through one of those flipping page by page. Of course, now it's done electronically, but I thought, well, Sleep is fascinating, but probably not a good field for me. And it was during the month of otolaryngology elective where I spent time with a guy who's become a good friend of mine, was a mentor when I was at the University of California, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He did a sleep apnea surgery case. And, oh. and there was primarily only one procedure available. And he basically said, you know, we've you got CPAP. When that doesn't work, that's when you think about some other stuff. And I basically asked, so how well does it work? He said, no, nah, it doesn't work very well. I said... <laughs> The really common problem for people that can't wear a CPAP, we need to think about something else. And we have one procedure that doesn't really work well. I think we can do better. And so I basically always felt that I was going to be involved in research. And uh, that was what really uh, thought there was a lot of low hanging fruit. And, and certainly we don't have all the answers now, but, but uh, hopefully there's been a lot of progress in the last 20 years or so since, since I was the uh, actually, more than 20 years since I was a medical student and, and thought about sleep when I was applying to residency, which at that time was super unusual that someone would think about sleep surgery. Uh, basically, was thinking about pediatric otolaryngology and sleep surgery, and I chose one of those two fields. Now, do you have to do a surgery year before you go into ENT, like a first year of just general surgery? 
Right. So the residency programs uh, have changed a little bit since I was uh, going through my training. It used to be that you had a one-year general surgery internship. Which right. General surgery internship. You could end up doing all sorts of things. I mean, I did two months of orthopedics. Oh, okay. Try to throw in a little neurosurgery, a little bit of, you know, things that would be more directly relevant. But you were doing, I was doing orthopedics and doing foot and ankle surgery. <laughs> Far from, that, you know, far from the nose and mouth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like completely, totally unrelated. Um, but basically, uh, now the internship has become more, like in many other fields, it's become a little bit, uh, not only shorter in terms of the non-otolaryngology aspect, I mean, it's more like six months. Uh, you have six months of otolaryngology, six months of, of other related fields that are more carefully, I guess, selected to be applicable. That makes sense. Now, I want to go back and you said like, you know, how happy you are kind of reflects the, the specialty you go into. Now, I can think that I want everyone to know that you're unique because you're a very pleasant person to actually interact with. And I can't say the same for all the partners in ENT. They're always happy and smiling all the time, but you are a wonderful person to talk to. But I will say this much for people who want to go into the field is that I've asked you so many questions being a father, not even related to sleep apnea about how practical ENT is that people are motivated. Like, you know, my, my little daughter, I remember calling you about tonsils. I remember calling you about otitis media. So I don't want anyone to ever think there's, you're right. There's such a practicality in that, you know, growing up in the different stages of life, you know, obviously we're going to tailor towards sleep, but I remember I called you last week about, I mean, one of my, 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 I'm a pulmonologist and you're performing procedures connecting tracheas and esophaguses. And I'm like, what's going on here? So it is a very, very fascinating field. So I'm glad you didn't get turned off by your, your first year of general surgery and you actually pushed it. <laughs> no, no, the general surgery was fine. But you know, you, I mean, the way it is, like, like it, it still is the same way now. You apply for the residency yeah. when you're still in medical school. So by that time, I mean, I knew that I wanted to go into the field. It was really more the first couple of days of this one-week experience that all students had that I was basically not, not so impressed with, with what I saw and uh, it went from there. But by the time you applied, it was a combined thing where you knew you were doing your internship. For me, it was the same place where I did my residency. Uh, and so it's something that by that time, you're sort of a little bit locked in. I mean, you could obviously you know, leave your program, but yep. you're pretty much all set for where you want to do when you set up and start with the internship. Now, and, and so everyone understands that, you know, Dr. Kassarian is, is, is double boarded. He's just not an awesome ENT doctor. He's also boarded the same way I'm boarded in sleep medicine. So my question to you is, there's a lot of things in sleep out there. You know, there's some narcolepsy, there's some parasomnias. What is your favorite thing? It's a loaded question, but what, what interests you the most about sleep? Was it really just the surgical aspects or is there something else besides that that interested you in sleep medicine? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I've, past the boards without doing a formal sleep medicine fellowship. It was when the board in sleep medicine was started uh, over 10 years ago, you had this opportunity to do that if you were practicing sleep from sleep medicine. So I did a little extra, you know, I guess training and then uh, studied for the exam and I've recertified and all those important things to do. But yep. I think about it is I have enough knowledge to be dangerous, but the, the real, <laughs> I know enough to recognize things when yeah. they're coming up. And mm -hmm. I think that from a, for a surgeon especially, really the key is to know when there might be other explanations for why someone is having all these symptoms like sleepiness or fatigue or something else going on and to make sure that you don't just have, you know, the hammer to lay and look for nails that you want oh, of course. <laughs> a comprehensive standpoint. And so, you know, I refer patients to you, as you know, of course, that have these other kinds of sleep disorders because you have so much more expertise in really treating these conditions. I, I use my, you know, fund of knowledge to recognize these conditions and direct them 
to someone that is, you know, better able to, to handle some of the nuances and has more experience with whether it's medications or other kinds of treatments. It's really someone else that has the true expertise. That's, that's enough to really take them over the finish line, I guess, to, to really appreciate these things as well as treat them. So here, here's a kind of a, here's a good question I wanted to ask you. So when, when, when do you think a person should see a ENT doctor for a sleep disorder versus should it always be, and we're going to assume we're talking about sleep disorder breathing. We're going to assume we're talking about what 30 million plus people have obstructive sleep apnea. Do you think it should start with the sleep doctor, the medicine doctor first? Are there any times where maybe they should see you first? What do you think? How should that, how should that be initiated? Well, I mean, I see people as an initial evaluation all the time. So I, okay. think, I think that like with anything, I mean, obviously medicine has become a little bit over-specialized perhaps, but I think that as long as someone is doing something enough to, to do it properly, then I think you're in good hands. So if I see someone initially and, and I do a you know pretty thorough check, look, ruling out other sleep disorders and think that we're considering a, a sleep disorder breathing, so snoring and obstructive sleep apnea, I can order a sleep study. And of course, we work closely together all the time with the sleep center and, and getting sleep studies. And obviously, you know, I've taken it as being a real part of my practice, not just thinking about surgery only, but of course, we start with conservative options. Uh, you know, the really conservative stuff like sleeping on your side or stomach, yeah. alcohol within three hours of bedtime, weight loss, all those kinds of very important things. And I think that, um, you know, as far as initiating positive airway pressure therapy, for people that are relatively straightforward or even maybe just a little bit complicated, I could do that. Um, certainly, I mean, I see people that need a little bit more advanced approaches for positive airway pressure therapy. And of course, for them, I have no uh, qualms with, again, getting them connected with the real experts that can do that better than I can. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, it's a curiosity question. So are you doing a lot of uh, home sleep studies yourself now? Are you just waiting until they see Dr. Raj at the sleep center? But are you just getting those sleep studies yourself? I mean, how are you well, approaching this? No, I'm ordering myself. And that's why I mean, I refer to, you know, you all the time uh, for sleep studies at the center. And uh, I, I order the test, but I don't do the test. I don't read the studies myself. I mean, I've done that in my training, but, but this is what we have a partnership. I do work yeah. with medicine doctors that have you know referred me patients and so you know I'll be, be sending patients back to them if you know when they've come from them of course as well so it's something that i work with other centers as well but i order the studies all the time i don't actually read the sleep studies so i'm not looking at the actual data that are collected during the studies myself you know i, I looked at your website which is a great website by the way and so i got some questions from your own website so I want to hear you answer these ones. So, you know, basically when we think about obstructive sleep apnea, I think you mentioned it already is that, you know, lifestyle modifications, of course, positive airway pressure, we refer to it as CPAP. So I do have two groups of patients, one that snore. And I guess once you do a sleep study and you realize, hey, it's not sleep apnea. And I think the old joke is kind of like, well, I guess you're not going to die from snoring your bed partner. Well, you know what I mean? But so my question would be, so when we talk about surgery for snoring, can you kind of elaborate what are some surgeries for snoring? And also, I commonly have a group of patients that may need surgery for their obstructive sleep apnea because, you know, the PAP didn't work and there are some reasons to treat them. So my question to you is, do snoring and sleep apnea surgeries, what are they and do they actually work? What do you think? Well, so there is a whole range of procedures that exist uh, from very, you know, low impact, what we would consider minimally invasive procedures. There's still procedures that can be done in the office under local anesthesia that actually have relatively low pain involved, usually a couple of days of, you know, some 
pain pills here and there, narcotic pain pills, but not major intense recoveries. But of course, we have some things that are very intense. And there's some things that I don't even do anymore, like jaw advancement surgery. I used to do <laughs> um, So it's something that there's a pretty wide range. And I think that when people say, you know, what is your favorite surgery for sleep apnea, which you're not asking, but <laughs> some of my colleagues, what I say yeah. is that there's no one procedure. It's really the, what we've learned and really what motivated me, not just getting into sleep surgery, but coming out of my training. I, I heard some talks about you know, newer, well, to me, new, I never heard of them before, techniques about how we understand what is actually causing someone's uh, obstructive sleep apnea in particular, but can also be used for snoring, but really trying to get a handle on how we choose from what now is a, a wide array of procedures. It used to be just one thing, but now there's a wide array of procedures, but not just, you know, take a sledgehammer to put a nail in a two by four. You, you really want to tailor your treatment to really get effective results, but, but also not be over aggressive. And so that's really been the foundation of my career, to be honest, and, and certainly my research. And I think we finally, we're actually, it's crazy. We're finally answering some of those questions that really sparked my interest you know, over 15 years ago, it's taken a while because we had to build a little bit of a foundation to, to get there, but that's what we're, we're dealing with. And so the procedures that, that work, well, so mm -hmm. any procedure can work well. Okay. That's very positive view. Right I like patient. that. A very positive and, attitude. And yeah. I mean, so we could do a tracheotomy on everybody and that would work. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we want to be right. We want to be realistic. Right. And, well, I have many patients really for every procedure I perform mm -hmm. that it works great. And honestly, the results can hold up very well over time. I don't, there's not a lot of great studies uh, of better, I mean, most of the studies in sleep apnea surgery and snoring too, mm -hmm. three to six month outcomes. Okay. Okay. That's ridiculous. Why aren't they longer ones? Well, the truth is in pretty much all of medicine, there are not that many long-term studies that they're really difficult to perform them. And a lot of things don't have great long-term studies. And it's something that we still do them. It still help, and I can, all I can say is my experience suggests that the things that work against long-term results are number one, not getting good results to begin with, magically <laughs> getting right. better time, unless you have something happening like weight loss. If people gain weight, we've learned a little bit why that can compromise results, and so people that are heavier to begin with don't get as good results, and then if you gain weight after you get good results, that can worsen your results over time. And probably there is some aging effect um, that we don't quite understand, but some people it affects them more than others, that over time you can, you can lose some benefits. And oftentimes it's not just a you know, six months kind of effect, but it's more like a five to 10 years. But I mean, I get cards all the time from people <laughs> that say, thank you, eight years now free from CPAP, I can't thank you enough kind of thing. And they had a pretty, the person, one person that is, you know, that was to write that card, that's, you know, radio frequency, which is one of these lower impact measures. Uh -huh. And they got a great result. And so all I can say is that the few studies that are out there that are looking at sleep apnea surgery results long-term have basically shown that with old-fashioned single, you know, this era of one procedure only for everybody, which really, I mean, I don't do that procedure anymore at all because it's probably not the best procedure. But they say, oh, here's 15 years later, we've got a lot of people that still have sleep apnea. It's like, well, those, we have no idea whether they had good results to begin with. So it's That's not like true. Say that it's come back. It's really a... a very uh, clear, uh, faulty logic to me to, to, to take that and say that sleep surgery doesn't work. I think that for a long time, when you had one approach for everyone, it didn't work right. Uh, well, it didn't work very well. It wasn't the right thing to do for everybody because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, but it's something that, you know, you need to 
you need to get some of that evidence, it would be helpful. But it's something that, you know, 30% of people don't do well with CPAP. And, and that is the truth. I can it's, vouch it's, for that. <laughs> so, so, you know, you certainly, when someone comes in, I, I interrogate them almost. Like, <laughs> why didn't they work well? Is it that you don't like it? Because that's not a great reason not to wear it, of course. You know, it's what are we doing? Can we do something minor, even medications alone, that can get you more comfortable? And you know, before we take the plunge and think about a procedure, which in some cases can be a pretty, you know, non-trivial endeavor, um, yeah. that we want to see if we can get some good results with conservative stuff. And so that's why it's nice, you know, have this perspective of bridging some of the non-surgical approaches with surgery and not just say, oh, they came in my office, they must be thinking about surgery. It's, it's basically what can we do to get you there? Well, let me ask a question. I'm sure all listeners who snore, and everyone knows someone who snores, you know, what about these breathe right strips? I got to give a basic question to you. You know what I mean? I, I got to tell you, sometimes I'm tempted to buy one for my dad, you know, when I go to the store. So, uh, Eric, do they work? Are they worthwhile? Does everyone basically have done that before they've seen you? What's your tips on breathe right strips? Yeah, well, the, the basic answer to everything in thinking about sleep apnea is it depends. Okay. So, so with breathe right strips, the simplest approach, you can always try it, but yep. a better way to sort of uh, screen yourself or screen someone else is to simply watch someone as they breathe in through their nose. Some okay. breathe in, the sides of their nose cave in a little bit, and they can actually put their, uh, I guess, hands to lift up the sides of their nose a little bit, almost like mimicking what a breathe right strip oh. And they can see what a difference it makes. Everyone is going to help a little bit, but from people's okay. There's a really, there's a noticeable improvement. Those are the yep. ones you can, you can improve that. Now, in terms of clearing things up completely, it's going to be people that have some storm without sleep apnea. They're going to do better. People who are thinner do better. Younger probably do better. So there are a number of things that go into the equation as well. But if people have collapse on the sides of their nose when they breathe in, they're the kind of person that probably at least breathes better through their nose, whether it clears up the whole problem or not with breathe right strips. And there, sometimes there's people that can't wear them out. They don't stick or they hurt my skin and there's procedures available now to do it. But you know, these are the little simple things that you might do. Don't require any fancy equipment. You can just look in the mirror. On, yeah. on your own and I like that. Your nose collapse. Well, let me bring up two things. So you mentioned the word radio frequency ablation and you know what? I should have like stopped right there because some people don't know what that is, you know? So there are two snoring procedures I want to bring up because we've got the pro right here to comment on it. One of them, I'm going to use the brand names, just sorry about that, that, you know, in our little uvula and our soft palate, you inject some little rods in there. And I think the brand name is like a pillars procedure. And this radial frequency ablation is kind of like melting the tongue for the, for the non-surgeons out there listening to it. Now, are these still procedures that you offer or ENT doctors who specialize in sleep offer people for snoring? Do they work for sleep apnea? So they work for highly selected patients with sleep apnea, but really they're primarily snoring treatments. Okay. All under the umbrella term, what we would call palate stiffening procedures. Okay. So the pillar procedure is actually not really available right now. Why? What, what happened? Well, sadly, the, the founder, well, the owner, I guess, yeah. he, uh, passed away uh, in an untimely way a couple uh -oh. years ago. And he was sort of the, the pushing things along. And so they actually stopped making them. And so they're, it's not currently available. But the idea behind it is placing three or more often five uh, implants. Oh. Soft palate muscle. Sure. The themselves, it was a very well-tolerated tolerated substance called Dacron, which is used for reconstruction of all sorts of major blood vessels, like the aorta, the carotid artery, things like that. It was a pretty well-tolerated mm -hmm. body. 
and it would stiffen up by creating some scarring and having a little bit of stiffness itself, it would stiffen up the soft palate so it wouldn't flutter around and vibrate as much. And so wow. that, that's the basic way that these work. Um, okay. Through the tissue and tightening it up. Radio frequency off, often requires two treatments, typically two treatments, sometimes three, but usually two treatments is appropriate to, to, to stiffen the tissues enough. And so that's one of the downsides. But the nice thing about both of them is that they're relatively lower impact because the, the pain experience is a lot less because it's all under the surface. So you don't have the raw area inside your mouth that you can with some other sleep apnea surgeries. But they don't aren't aggressive, so they don't create as much space. They basically, yeah. especially for the palate, it doesn't really create space. Tongue radio frequency can be used for, for sleep apnea. It can work actually reasonably well in the right kind of patient. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about with you is like you mentioned earlier, just really briefly, that things, there was only one surgery in the past. And I was going to assume that's the one that all of my medical students and residents memorize, which is the U-triple-P, the uvulopalentopharyngeoplasty. That's a mouthful. But one thing that I know you do, and maybe you could elaborate on it, you do this procedure. It's so cool when I say it. It's called the DICE. And DICE stands for drug-induced lipidoscopy. So what I wanted to ask you is that, you know, when you go in there and you already realize this patient may require sleep apnea surgery, and when you tell the patients that you are going to literally knock them out and make them sleep and put a tube or a little camera in their nose to see where they collapse, are most patients like, sounds like a great idea, let's do it? Or are they kind of worried? Just, are you serious? You're really going to knock me out to see how I sleep? And has that been successful? And where did you get the idea of doing this drug-induced sleep endoscopy? All right, well, I'll start with the last question. So yep. drug-induced sleep endoscopy, what originally had a different name. It was described in 1991, so 30 years ago. What? <laughs> it had been developed in a couple of different centers in uh, Europe in the late 80s into the, the beginning of the 90s. And it was... Um, Basically, the idea is that there are different procedures now being developed, and or at least with the one procedure, we want to figure out who might respond best to it. And the analogy I share with my patients is that it's a little bit like a plumbing problem in your home. If there's no water that's flowing through your pipe, you want to figure out where the pipe is blocked and replace that section of the pipe. And so that's the idea behind drug-induced sleep endoscopies. We want to figure out where people are having blockage in breathing and treat them accordingly. Because mm -hmm. different things that can play a role. Of course. Uh, a couple of studies were done actually in the late 70s and into the early 80s of natural sleep endoscopy. And that involves basically taking the flexible fiber optic telescopes that we use. And I know you use something very similar, the bronchoscopes. Right. Basically, you know, it's having people trying to fall asleep naturally <laughs> in their nose, which is, you can imagine, a little bit difficult yeah. uh, to tolerate, especially if someone's, you know, if you're moving it around to look at different areas inside the throat. Of course. The idea behind sedating patients is to do it in a way that's as close as possible to natural sleep and, and uh, mimicking the patterns of sleep apnea that they already have. We know that from a sleep study. Sure. Placing a sleep study, but you're saying as someone that's thinking about possible surgery and also considering these oral appliance mouthpieces, but basically thinking about what we might see in terms of guiding us uh, during an evaluation before we just have surgery. Now, some of my colleagues in Europe do it on everyone. Oh, okay. Like a group of patients. Patients, when they hear about it, are, are usually thinking, this is the most obvious thing ever. Why is, why is everyone not doing this? Because when I started doing it yeah. at a uh, American Academy of Otolaryngology meeting, when I was a fellow, so this was 2003. Okay. <laughs> this German surgeon who's now become one of my good friends and a, and a colleague and basically gave this talk and I, and I was fascinated. 
And I, I thought it just made complete sense. And so the question we asked was, how much does it improve things? What does it tell us? What are the most important things about it? And, and on, this is what's taken us a little while to, to sort out. Uh, not necessarily, not with, with that German colleague and another colleague from Holland, we developed what's called the vote classification system, which is probably the most popular way of saying, you know, what key structures are playing a role. Okay. VLUM, which is a fancy name for the soft palate or the roof of the mouth. Okay. For the oral pharyngeal lateral walls, so basically the sides of the throat. T is for tongue and E is for epiglottis, which is like a trapdoor structure that goes over your voice box so that when you swallow, things don't go down the wrong way. So you would actually take out the epiglottis? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. So these are the four structures that can play a role. <laughs> and we have different procedures that may target these uh, structures. Okay. Right. So you say, you know, how bad is it? How much of a role is this? And you know, you don't do necessarily surgery on the palate only if the tongue is really a big part of things. You've got to think about how you're going to get the whole space for breathing open. And so, you know, we have a somewhat crude way of matching these, but, you know, we're trying to improve things. And we just, you know, had a couple of major international efforts to with like 10 to 15 centers, each one of them to look at different kinds of procedures. And we, we did it as scientifically as we really could uh, without knowing basically what kind of procedures people were getting or, or certainly what kind of results they got and had four of us surgeons looking at these, you know, hundreds of, uh, you know, videos, which was, you know, very time consuming, but this was finally the way to really tease out what we were learning with this and how it was improving our results. Now for certain structures like the epiglottis, which by itself falls back and causes sleep apnea, in a relatively smallish group of patients, about 5% maybe. Um, and so there are some procedures that maybe target this more specifically. In Europe, it's actually quite common to remove part of the epiglottis. So okay. trim off the top half or something like that. There are other procedures that maybe pull the epiglottis forward that maybe pull it out of the space of the, the breathing pathway. So there are different approaches. And honestly, we don't know which one's better. But we, we, we have, we're learning more and understanding more. And I think we've, we've in the last couple of years, actually a couple of our fellows have led these studies through our center. But, you know, we, we've getting everybody together. We've had support from, you know, the Sleep Medicine Foundation as well as the Laryngology Foundation to really do these kinds of, of studies to really try to advance things over what we've been doing so far. Wow. And, you know, for the listeners, so why did, I'm like, wow, you're taking out the epiglottis. Well, it comes down to anatomy really simply is that the epiglottis covers my esophagus and my trachea, so I won't aspirate. You know, that's one of the, the main things of the epiglottis. So I, I wonder if they're like, coughing and choking all the time without that epiglottis there. And it worries me. But once again, you know, it's a partial. I like the one we said you're pulling it. I like that one. That one sounds to be the way to go a little bit. I like that one. It, it may be. I mean, for, for all these things, I mean, trouble swallowing, including, you know, coughing with liquids or solids is a yeah. risk. They're, they're not high risks. Um, okay. Really pretty low risk. And in fact, I mean, it's something that, you know, for cancer patients that are getting radiation treatment, all sorts of things. Um, they do great. And they, I mean, they get like much more involved resection of tissue. I, I don't well said, well said <laughs> for a totally different reason. Of course. <laughs> thing that you, you want to obviously minimize risks. <laughs> this is balanced. So you, tra there's often a trade off of some risk of trouble swallowing and things like that. And you know, there've been studies that have looked at things like surgery of the soft palate and come out with these, you know, not really headlines because it's not like they're in the New York times or anything like that. But <laughs> you know, these findings of 60% of people have trouble swallowing. Well, that's if you, sometimes these, these studies have looked at very detailed tests, looking for a trace amount of basically liquid getting up into the back of the nose when you swallow. 
things that people don't even know are happening and certainly don't bother them. <laughs> the short answer is, unless it's pretty substantial trouble swallowing, which is pretty uncommon, if people get good results with sleep apnea surgery, meaning that they can finally you know, feel like themselves again, mm -hmm. to trade that, you know, what can be two to three weeks of, of substantial pain uh, for getting that kind of relief of, you know, this sort of, I guess, trapping feeling, a uh, uh, trap feeling of sleepiness, fatigue, and obviously health concerns and snoring and all that kind of stuff. No, and so, no, I agree. And for patients, when you mentioned about doing the dice, you haven't had any roadblocks. A lot of them were actually enthusiastic where they thank you for taking the effort, the time to pick the right surgery. Because I know it wasn't always like that. You know, I mean, when I trained, there wasn't dice that was commonly performed. So that was very impressed, you know, being part of USC and that fellowship and having a partner, an ENT doctor like you are taking these procedures that were not common across the country. So no roadblocks from the patient standpoint. They were happy with it. No, I mean, it's, it's been something that it's really been, uh, you know, more enthusiasm. I think part of it is that there's a therapy out there called upper airway stimulation that it stimulates with the <laughs> muscle nerve. Yep. Yeah. And it's actually required before you would get it. So that's pushed a lot of people to do it. I mean, I probably was one of the the real major proponents of it early on and really helped spread it. I mean, we've developed this classification system. We gave it the name of drug-induced sleep endoscopy. So we really sort of push it. But I've always been very cautious and very critical of things to say, like, really, what is most important? What are the important findings? Because not every little nuance of this, that, whatever is so key, at least according to our current knowledge. There's really some things that are, that are much more important than others. And that's what we've helped sort out with these studies. So you kind of touched base on, I was definitely going to go into this. So one of the, the procedures that you do after you do your drug-induced sleep endoscopy is something that you're mentioning, this tongue-stimulating device. So when I do my internal medicine board review classes where I'm teaching, it always raises an ear. Everyone's like, what did you say when you mentioned tongue-stimulating device? I mean, they think it's like a joke. Like, no, it's, it's really there, you know? So you are actually one of the people that has done quite a bit of these procedures. I could be downplaying it, but it's truly, we've shared patients together where the people listening for people who would qualify therapists, maybe they, they have obstructive sleep apnea, they didn't you know, respond to CPAP therapy and after a drug-induced sleep endoscopy a decision was made, literally everyone, if you could imagine, there is kind of like a, a, it's a device that's implanted under the skin on the right side of the chest wall and one wire connects to the nerve that connects your tongue called the hypoglossal nerve and there's a little remote and literally that's what it does. So my question to uh, Dr. Kassarian is, how, I mean, how did somebody even think about a tongue stimulating device and can you comment about have you had success in it and, uh, and what are some of the tough things? I got a couple of cases for you but what is your take on it, and how did this come about? Sure. So it was actually the idea is not new at all. The original work was done, started out with stimulating the tongue muscle with just little wires going into the tongue in animals and then in humans. And then they built on that with stimulating the nerve, this hypoglossal nerve that controls tongue movement and showing real improvements in not only space for breathing, but also amount of air coming in and out. And then it led uh, Medtronic, a major medical device company, developed a device in the 90s that was doing this. And the oh. device, they worked okay. They okay. were not selected. There weren't that many of them, but they had some people that really responded well. But you know, the devices actually broke down, um, and they decided to not you know, pick it up and, and troubleshoot and sort out the problem. So major patents actually ran out. And at that time, three different companies picked up the idea 
and develop slightly different approaches, but uh, to, to doing the same kind of thing. And one company has a product that's now available in the United States. Um, it's this upper airway simulation. The, the company is Inspire Medical Systems. Mm-hmm. We was the first uh, surgeon. We were the first center in the Western United States to offer it to patients. That's and right. <laughs> it's been, been a nice thing, not for everyone with sleep apnea, but it's been a really nice thing. You have to go through specific uh, testing and their criteria for whom it would people be eligible because it's somewhat expensive. And it's basically, the, the company doesn't like it when we refer to it like this, but <laughs> and so it's a tongue pacemaker that moves it forward and it's, it's got a different couple of wires that connect to it that not only allow you to stimulate the, the nerve that controls tongue movement, but it also does it in sequence with your breathing so that it moves your tongue forward when you need your throat open, which is when you're breathing in. And so basically that's, that's how well it works and it works well. It's not perfect. The, the results have been pretty solid. There are five-year results that show about you know, two-thirds of patients do really well with it. Um, there are some challenges to it. Uh, and I think that, honestly, I see a lot of people, not only my own patients, but people come from other centers if they haven't done well with it. So we've got a fair amount of experience, and I've written on my, my silly little blog about what to do if mm-hmm. it works well with it. And the first thing is don't give up. Um, but I think that uh, there are different reasons why people don't do well with it. Sometimes it's a simple thing of changing the way the electricity is delivered to stimulate your nerve. Sometimes it's a question of doing uh, sleep endoscopy uh, to figure out what while sometimes the most common thing is that it moves your tongue forward, but that might not be the entire issue. For example, you may need to have something like the soft palate addressed with possible surgery there. So you get this combination treatment of moving the tongue forward with the device and then soft palate surgery. We've had a few patients that have responded very well to that. And we're not the only ones that have thought of this, but you know, it's something that is, a, is definitely one reason why people don't do well. Now, what, what, I got to ask yeah, you, what is the, when you first uh, mentioned this to the patient, you know, you did your dice or having the, the consultation. So, Dr. Kassarin, what do you think would be the best for my husband or my wife? Do they, do they have that look on their face? Or like, you know, I think the tongue stimulating device may be the answer. Or <laughs> I got to know. So, so, you, did, you, did, you did this consultation. What, what happened? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, so the, the company themselves have done a yeah. fair amount of marketing. So there okay. are many patients that come in, and this is what they want. Oh, okay. Sometimes they're not really a good candidates for it for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And I explain it to them. The, the marketing doesn't necessarily fully explain exactly what it is. So I have a little sample device that I'll show them. And so that sometimes makes them very interested and, and uh, sometimes not as interested. I think that there are people that have never heard of it that I explain it to them and, and explain why it would be a very good option for them. Again, we've done this drug induced sleep endoscopy study, and one of the studies was looking at this specific therapy and how you might get a sense of whether people would respond well to it or not as well to it. And so I think that there's some uh, uh, people feel differently, and that's why it's not for everybody, because people have to be comfortable with the idea of a device in their body. But again, there's less in the way of other side effects. We mentioned trouble swallowing. There really shouldn't be any risk of trouble swallowing with this, because you're not changing anything. You're not cutting anything out. You're not moving things around. You're not doing anything like that. And so it has a lot lower risks than a different set of risks. But Sure. But some other things. Now, I got to tell you, so we shared these patients. It's not the first time I've heard of the Inspire, and we've worked on together. You know, in my opinion, the, the tough ones, I mean, I think the device does what it's meant out to do. It definitely corrects the intellectual sleep apnea. But when you have the insomnia component, that, that is a toughie. You know, especially when, like, 
you're, you're seeing the results by reducing what we call the apnea hypopnea index. We're getting a good number, but they're having difficulty initiating sleep, falling asleep, and they think that device might help out with that aspect of it, and it doesn't. And so, I mean, it's nothing you have to overly comment on, but I want to just emphasize what you just said. It's not, it's not for everyone, not just in an anatomical sense, but in choosing the patients correctly. Absolutely. That was, uh, I feel very strongly in full support of what you said. Basically, there are many patients, I mean, sleep apnea is common, insomnia is common. So you're going to have a lot of yep. people just by the odds. And so sometimes you actually can treat the sleep apnea and improve the insomnia. That can happen with CPAP, that can happen with surgery, it can happen with oral appliance mouthpieces. And so when Inspire came out, it said like, hey, this is going to be great. We're going to take care of you know, birds with one stone, all that kind of thing. But the problem is, like you say, that the way the system works is it doesn't really wake you up if you're already asleep. But if you have trouble falling asleep or if you wake it repeatedly, it can be a really difficult situation. Or if your patterns are irregular, like some nights I fall asleep within 10 minutes, some nights two hours. It's really not good for Inspire. And a few of us got together at one of our International Surgical Sleep Society meetings, sat around a table, sort of, you know, got Inspire asked people to get together and talk about various projects that they had in the works and all that kind of thing. And then they just asked us, what's your best and the worst thing about Inspire? And I said, the best thing was that it really moves the tongue forward better than any other surgery that I have. So it actually proved true in our study where we showed that if the tongue is really the key for your sleep apnea, you'll do great with something like this that moves the tongue forward in such a you know, clear way. And let me give a visualization. So when Dr. Saren puts in this device, they come to our sleep clinic, our sleep lab, we turn the device on. And sometimes I have some of your ENT fellows who are rotating with me. So when we turn the device on, we literally are staring at their tongue. They open their mouth and I'm like a foot away seeing what happens to the tongue. And because it, it, the, the joy on the fellow's face, when they see a good protrusion of the tongue. They're so happy. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I didn't think that would make you so happy, <laughs> but it, it, you're right. You know what I mean? It's just one of those joys being hands-on. I'm sure being a surgeon, when I see uh, the final product, <laughs> when it happens, it, well, we, we've tested I'm going to be you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, we've tested in the operating room. So when yeah. we do the surgery, it's working. And then it's a month later, it'll be turned on and it's still working. <laughs> it's good. They like it. And that, that's how it works. And the I tell people and patients that it's not like, I don't know if any of listeners are old enough, but Gene Simmons from Kiss, you know, the guy sticking his <laughs> chin. It's not quite like that. It's really just <laughs> basically if you open your mouth, it'll go a little bit past your teeth, but the, the back of the tongue really moves forward. And I thought that that's really what it does great. But what I said when we had this meeting was that the real Achilles heel mm -hmm. of fire is insomnia. So if people have bad insomnia, it's a disaster. And so we actually have had to remove devices in a couple of our patients who had really bad insomnia and a couple of patients who had insomnia got implanted elsewhere. And I think that it's not on the list of formal things that are required for screening purposes, but certainly at our center it is. And I think, you know, you learn lessons. You want to pay attention to people that have a real trouble with anything, including this. And that's, you know, what we do in a you know, constant effort to improve our results and save people the, you know, the, the, the troubles. Of, of going through something like this. But, uh, you know, the device, it works, and it's actually the patients. I love watching their eyes, not their tongue, but their eyes, because <laughs> when they're, when they, they're not telling their tongue to move forward, and all of a sudden it moves forward. And they said, wow, it really works. And so uh, you get used to it. It started at a very low level, so the tongue barely moves, so they barely feel it. But gradually over time, people get very comfortable with it. 
as long as they don't have this, you know, pretty significant insomnia problem. Now, and you know, the field sleep medicine in general is just, is so advancing in that I feel like a lot is becoming device oriented. And so for those who don't know, beyond the inspired device that we just were talking about for obstructive sleep apnea, we know it's actually devices we implant for something called central sleep apnea. So things are just changing all the time. It's not just, well, here's your mask and lose some weight. There's so many options out there now. But uh, I wanted to ask you this question. So here, here, here what is your take on uh, the dental device? Because we're talking all about surgeries. We're talking all about CPAP. I want to say one, one last thing about, uh, are you a fan? Do they work? Where's your, where do you fall on the, on the spectrum of that? So there's a lot of uh, completely unproven dental devices that are out there that are, that are claim to expand your jaw in adults, to expand the jaw. There's something called the DNA appliance, the ALF, all sorts of a whole slew of things. And actually, a couple of us, you know, some, some major players from around the world just had a paper accepted at one of the major, the, the Blue Journal, one of the major. Oh, okay. Talking about how these manufacturers and some people are preying on these patients who are often desperate and charging, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for things that are completely unproven. So that's not what I think of when I think about dental devices. I think about things that are much more carefully studied, these oral appliances that basically pull the lower jaw forward. And those are great options for patients and real important benefits and some, you know, possible uh, disadvantages. Uh, The the benefits are that uh, advancing the lower jaw can be very helpful in improving the space of breathing, especially down lower in the throat behind the tongue. They can be very helpful. They can work well, especially in mild to moderate sleep apnea for the right kind of patient. They're fantastic options. Sometimes even in combination with surgery, but often by themselves, you know, they're very reasonable approaches and can work well. Now, the downsides are you have to obviously wear them for them to get the kind of benefits uh, that you you might see because it's like CPAP. It doesn't work if you're not wearing it. You can get some issues with your jaw, join your TMJ. They can move your teeth so they can change your bite and they can give you some tooth pain. Those are not life-threatening problems, though, and so it's the key is whether someone really is going to be able to wear this and get benefit from it, so they have to do both, and that's why you know I uh, refer many patients for them. Sometimes even when they have pretty bad sleep apnea, if that's sort of going to be a key thing that really offers benefit for them, I'll, I'll tell them your dentist may not be too enthusiastic, but you're going to do great. And sometimes it's based on this sleep endoscopy where we actually lift the jaw forward, sort of reproducing what these oral appliance mouthpieces might offer. And you see somebody's, their throat may open tremendously. But I often see people where it doesn't open at all, or it opens partway, but not in other areas. So, so it's these kinds of things that it's a very important, what we would consider it as an anatomical treatment, uh, and it treats certain parts of the throat differently in different patients. And that's why, you know, you use it as part of an overall treatment approach. I don't make them myself. There are custom-made ones that people would, I, I just... People can, I can direct some people if they want to get the more affordable option, they can buy one online usually. There are some ones that are good online and there's lots of ones that are terrible online. But, but for someone to get the best trial of it, the custom-made devices, they're usually smaller and they're more comfortable and they can be very helpful, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, we both see such a variety of patients, you know, and there are definitely, I think, a niche of patients where, you know, younger in age, for whatever reason, just can't see themselves wearing a CPAP mask for a variety of reasons. And I think there is a role for a dental device, especially, you know, when I think of my athletes who 
you know, many times um, do have sleep apnea at a younger age. And all of a sudden you're telling them to, hey, wear a mask. Maybe a dental device could be a, a reasonable option. And I guess, are there patients that after they failed CPAP and they go to you to see what else there is in the surgical standpoint, have you taken that step back and said, hey, maybe try this down device and then we could see where this leads to? That's not uncommon? Without without a doubt. I mean, I think you want to have healthy teeth and healthy gums and all those kinds of things. I actually use it a little bit more in somewhat older patients because if you have someone, they're going to be wearing it for 60 years. So they're going to be more likely to run into dental side effects. They can absolutely try it. But okay. that you, you just want to be clear that they're going to need to be wearing this to, to, to think about, you know, clearing up their sleep apnea, at least for the time being. Now, they may wear it for 10 years, and then there's something totally new available. That may absolutely happen. But it's something that it's, you know, there, there is some, you know, people used to think that if you get an appliance and you wear it for, you know, five years, well, your teeth move and then they stop moving. But it turns out that the best studies done by dentists uh, out in Vancouver, there's a really established person uh, who's taken impressions of teeth and looked at them over time. Your teeth keep moving. They don't stop moving. So that's why, you know, if you have many decades ahead of, your, ahead of you, then if you get tooth movements, and not everybody does, but, but yeah. especially if you've had braces or something like that before, then you're going to keep getting those movements going to be progressing uh, over time. Well, I got to say that I asked you to be on here for 30 minutes. It's like an hour almost. I mean, it, it just shows like our friendship just goes right through our, our podcast, you know. But I do want to say that uh, I want to give you a chance that if someone, I'm sure someone will love to know where you are, how to get a hold of you. Uh, what are some places they could find you, something to, to meet Dr. Kasarian? Sure, sure. Well, I'm at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. We have a couple locations, although now with the coronavirus pandemic, things are a little bit different. But so the first appointments for people would be an, a telemedicine online appointment. But to learn more, uh, Raj, mentioned, you mentioned my website, and it's uh, much easier to remember than my last name. So it's just <laughs> then a hyphen and doctor spelled out dot com. So it's a little easier to remember sleep hyphen doctor dot com. So I, I imagine uh, we're going to have lots of questions now. Eric, would you be nice enough down the line to come back again if you get more questions about surgery and options for sleep apnea? Would you love to come back on the Dr. Raj show? Absolutely. And my email address is right on my website. If people have questions they'd like to ask directly, feel free. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to put a link on our podcast site to make sure they can find you quite easily. And we'll put all further information. But I got to tell you, thank you very much for taking the time of your busy schedule to hanging out here today. Always great to speak with you, Raj. All right, buddy. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Mm-hmm.